And finally, let's turn in our Bibles to our sermon text, which is uh, going to be Acts chapter 2 again. Uh, the liturgy is wrong. It should be Acts 2, uh, 14 through 21, but the sermon notes page is correct. So I uh, had a sort of a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde this week on my, uh, on my sermon preparation, so one's right and one's wrong, okay? But uh, Acts 2. 14 through 21. We picked up, uh, we picked up where we left off last Sunday. Uh, we uh, finished up that last part of verse uh, 13 in Acts 2. Uh, and I should say, normally during Advent season, we pause uh, and we usually reflect on some Old Testament prophecy or something about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but we just started Acts and I, uh, I guess I'd kind of say, I, I, at least I feel like I'm kind of feeling it. So, uh, want to stay in Acts uh, with you this Advent. I hope that's okay. So uh, Acts 2, 14, down through verse 21. This is the first section of Peter's uh, inaugural sermon, or at least Luke's summary of Peter's sermon. So uh, they've been speaking in uh, uh, tongues or dialects, languages, and uh, people are amazed and perplexed that these Galileans are speaking in uh, the, these languages of Jews and Gentiles from across the Roman and the Parthian empires, uh, the ancient world, the Mediterranean uh, basin. Uh, and, but yet others are mocking. That's the end of verse 13. Others are mocking what they're hearing because they said they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, these are the apostles, lifted up his voice and addressed them, the whole crowd, but especially those mockers. Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." And all of God's people say, Amen. Well, Pentecostal, uh, that word Pentecostal, uh, it's an adjective. Pentecostal is an adjective. It just means whatever pertains to Pentecost. And we saw last Sunday that the day of Pentecost had arrived, it had fully come. Uh, Pentecost was the 50th day uh, after, uh, after the Passover. Uh, it was an ancient festival of the Jews that they would celebrate the harvest, the grain, the barley harvest. And so Pentecost, the Greek term for Pentecost, uh, meant the 50th day. And so Pentecostal, it's an adjective. It's the things, or it is that which pertains to Pentecost. It's to, to do Pentecost things or to be a Pentecost kind of person, as, as it were. But we only think of Pentecostal as a noun. I bet uh, as we think of the word Pentecostal, maybe you see it there on the, on, the, uh, on the sermon notes page. We think of Pentecostal, though, merely as a noun. It's a, a certain kind of Christian, a certain kind of 
church, a, a very 20th century American church that was founded in Azusa Street up in Los Angeles in 1906. Pentecostal is an adjective. Pentecostal also can be a noun. And we think of it merely as a noun. It's a kind of church uh, that does sort of Pentecostal things, right? But when we think that way, we surrender the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to those kinds of churches, at least we think, that do Holy Spirit kind of stuff. Yes, on Pentecost, that first Pentecost in Acts 2, verses 1 through 13, the first disciples miraculously, we saw, spoke in dialectos, they spoke in languages, they spoke in known languages that the people heard, and that's why they were perplexed that these Galilean Jews were speaking in their languages. But yet, what do we read in the rest of the chapter? Or, or, or I should say, what else do we read? What are the kinds of things that Peter and the 11, the, the apostles, and the disciples, the 120, what are they doing here? Yes, they are speaking miraculously in languages of the nations, but we go on to read in the rest of this chapter, beginning with this morning, the kinds of things that they do. Are these miraculous things? Preaching. We'll see at the end of chapter 2. Baptizing. We'll see in chapter 2, verse 42. There's this very important little summary verse uh, of the things that the earliest disciples were doing and what they were participating in. Preaching, baptizing, communing the Lord's Supper, praying and fellowshipping. They devoted themselves to those things. And so at least for my sake, for my, on my part, this morning, I'm not willing to surrender the language of Pentecostal. Because we are united to Jesus Christ. We trust in Him by faith, and He is ours, and we are His, and because of that, He is the one who gives to us the Spirit. He's already baptized us in the Spirit, the Bible says. And therefore, we, we, literally this morning, kind of cold in here, so we literally, that's the frozen chosen. Okay? Poor Sadie forgot her sweatshirt this morning. <laughs> we do the things of the Spirit this morning. We therefore do the things the Pentecost church did in reliance on the Holy Spirit. We, dare I say, I think I said it last Sunday, but we are a Pentecost church, a, even a Pentecostal church because we do these things. Chief of which, primary of which is in this chapter, preaching. When we preach the word of God, and when we hear the word of God, and then when we, as we'll see in Acts, we go out and we spread the word, we are acting as Pentecostal Christians. In the best sense of that word. Those who are baptized in the Holy Spirit, those who rely upon the Holy Spirit, those who are joined to the King, Jesus Christ, who's given us the gift of the Holy Spirit, and like the Apostolic Church, and like the, that Pentecost Church, we do these things. And so we preach. Pentecostal preaching. One hymn prays this prayer, and I'll pray it to begin. Pour out your Spirit from on high. Lord, your ordained servants bless. Graces and gifts to each supply and clothe your priests with righteousness. 
So what is Pentecostal preaching? I want us to focus on Acts 2 the next couple of weeks. Uh, I want us to see this morning one aspect of what true Pentecostal preaching is, and that is this. It is urgent. From verses 14 to 21, we learn this, that true preaching, Pentecostal preaching, preaching that is united with the Holy Spirit and that is dependent upon the Holy Spirit, it is an urgent kind of a preaching. And notice here from our passage several things that arise with this idea of this urgency of Pentecostal preaching. It's an urgency of answering people's immediate objections. People see what Christians do. People hear what Christians say. They hear what we believe. And they have objections. Right out of the gate, right from the beginning, they they object to what we do and what we say. And so it's imperative for us, it's incumbent upon us right out of the gate as well to answer those immediate objections so that we can then get to deeper layers of what's really behind the objection, to bring them the gospel. And that's what Peter does. There's an urgency here in answering people's objections. Again, notice in verse 12 from last Sunday, Uh, They were all amazed, this crowd of Jews and some God-fearing Gentiles who had traveled from Parthia and all throughout the Roman Empire. They came to Jerusalem because, once again, Pentecost is one of those three required feasts of the Jews. And who is required to come three times a year to Jerusalem? Remember? From the Old Testament, there are three key festivals. There's the the Feast of Passover, there's Pentecost, 50 days later, and there's also the uh, Tabernacles or Booths. Who was required to show up three times a year to Jerusalem? All who? All the men, right? All the men of Israel were required three times a year to come to Jerusalem. So that's who's there. That's who's there. Men and their sons, and no doubt there's a crowd of women as well, but required, required of all men in Israel to be there three times a year. And so they, they are gathered there. They hear this sound that sounds like a rushing wind we saw in the first couple of verses. And it amazes them. It perplexes them because they're coming to see. They're gathering around this crowd. There's this upper room. This loud noise is emanating forth out of it. And they see and they hear the disciples and they're all preaching and they're praying in these known languages that they themselves are hearing. How can it be that these Galileans are speaking, notice there in verse number 7. And they're speaking what? The mighty works of God, verse number 11. They're amazed, they're perplexed. And so they ask, what does this mean, verse number 12? What does this mean? But, verse 13, where we left off, others are mocking. Others are mocking. Diakluazo is the, the Greek verb here. It's a jest. Mocking, joking even. They're filled with new wine. Right? Here it's the third hour of the day, Peter says. That means it's 9 a.m. The, the, the time goes from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. The day starts over at 6 a.m. And so it's the third hour. 6 a.m. is the beginning, is hour zero, as it were, 7, 8, 9. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. And they're already drunk. They're drinking new wine. We were at SeaWorld a couple of nights ago, and uh, at the end of the night, we were walking through, and huge crowd of people, 
and uh, the kids remember this. There was a guy, uh, uh, I remember him having in one hand a beer, and in the other hand was pushing his stroller, and he bumped into someone, and he looks, and I won't repeat what, exactly what he says, but I'll paraphrase, you know, get out of the way! You know, what are you doing? And, of, and then we, walking, are, we're kind of mocking this guy. You know, we're making fun of this guy. We're laughing at this guy. Here's this guy with a beer with a baby, strolling through Cyril, and what do you expect? You're going to bump into people. They're, they're, we were jesting, right? We were jeering. We were laughing, and other people were, uh, were as well. They're mocking here. They're mocking here. They are filled with new wine. Uh, this new wine, be, better yet, sweet wine. Glucose is the Greek term. Sweet wine. It's new wine. It's sweet wine. It, it's good, right? Uh, if you pick up uh, a, a nice... Uh, Gewürz demeanor, a uh, nice sweet wine. Uh, it's the kind of wine that you just, you know, you just can't put down. You, you got to keep, you, 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 you drink more and you get another glass. It's sweet. It's easy on the palate. It doesn't numb your taste buds so quick. And so they're jesting and making fun of they're drunk at nine o'clock in the morning. But Peter noticed, verse 14, among the 11, as, as a representative of the, of the apostles, he answers them, the, the mockers, that is. They're not drunk, verse 15. It's only the third hour. It's just 9 o'clock in the morning. But note here the, the big point. Peter doesn't dismiss the mocking. He doesn't dismiss the objection that it's 9 o'clock in the morning, that they're drunk. He listens to the objection, and he answers it urgently urgently answers their objection. We see in Peter's example here, uh, an example to us, uh, that we are to be, uh, as one New Testament writer says, slow to speak, but... You know that verse? Slow to speak, but... Quick to listen. I think it's the other way around. Quick to listen, slow to speak. But we're to be slow to speak, quick to listen. Why? Well, the Old Testament Proverbs say that. Proverbs in chapter 10, verse number 19. Whoever restrains his lips is prudent. You don't have to always be the first guy to, or first gal to, to speak, right? To right out of the gate speak. Proverbs 17, verse 27. Whoever restrains his lips has knowledge. Peter doesn't dismiss the objection. He doesn't blow them off. He doesn't jest back. No, you're the ones who are drunk. No, he listens. And so we are to listen. We, we, we must listen to objections. We need to understand the objections that someone brings about the Christian faith here in the Advent season, the season that leads up to Christmas. How can it be that God becomes a man? How can you believe such a thing? How can God die on a cross? How can you believe in a resurrection from the dead? Have you seen a resurrection lately? How can you believe that you and all the things that you've done? God can forgive you. There's no way. There's no way. The objections. But we've got to listen to them. We've got to understand objections. And if you don't quite understand what a person is saying, a friend is saying, ask for clarification. You should be able to talk to a friend and a loved one and a neighbor uh, and a family member and a co-worker uh, in such a way that as you're discussing this person's objections that you can be able to restate it and that they would say, yeah, that's what I'm saying. 
That's what, that's what I'm getting at. And they agree with it. And that shows that you've listened. You've been some, somewhat of, uh, you've had some, some empathy, uh, some personal interests. You're not just already formulating your answer and your response. You're not even listening to their questions, to their objections. No, you're listening and taking it seriously. So Peter is slow to speak, quick to listen. He's prudent because he restrains his lips. He has knowledge because he restrains his tongue, as the proverb says. And then he addresses. And then he addresses. Peter later on is going to say in his first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, that all of us as believers... All of us who receive the word, the gospel, and all of us who are a kingdom of priests, 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us, all of us are to be always ready, ever ready, to give an answer, an apology, a defense. To give an answer, a defense to everyone who asks us the reason for the hope that lies within us. All of us are to be ever ready to give answers to the objections and the questions and the concerns of those who would ask us, well, why is it that you believe this? Why do you believe that they spoke in languages? Why do you believe that God even exists? Why do you believe in miracles? Why do you waste your time on Sunday? Why do you say what you say about things that are, uh, of course, in our society? Human sexuality, identity. Why do you say what you say about those things? Be ever ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you with gentleness and self-control. And so here's Peter urgently answering people's immediate objections. And everyone has an immediate objection. Everyone has one. Listen. Ask Ask for clarification. Restate it, and then, having listened and shown some prudence and shown some patience and shown some empathy, shown some wisdom, then, then, having been quick to listen, then, speak. Notice, secondly, there's an urgency in Peter's preaching, this Pentecostal preaching, there's an urgency of reckoning time from God's vantage point. There's an urgency of reckoning time from God's vantage point. What's the date today? November 27th, what year is it? 2022, I think it is, right? Haven't written a check in a while, so 2022, I think, right? Was there a certain day in a month in a year when Peter stood up and did this and said this? Was there a real historic... Did this, this, this really happen? Yes. This is a real factual account. And he could have said it's X day, it's X month, it's X year. Somewhere, somewhere in the 30 to 33 range, we believe. So there's a human time that we can all look on our watch, look at our phone, whatever it might be. Maybe we have a grandfather clock at home. We can reckon time. We know the dates. We know the hour, we know the month, we know the year. That's from our vantage point. But there's also time from God's vantage point. 
Notice how Peter stands up and as he listens to the objection, and then he answers the objection, there's an urgency because he knows that there's a time according to God. Verse 16, But this, what they are hearing, what the crowds are hearing, this sound, this noise, these languages, these mighty works of God, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. You see there that indented section in your Bible if you have it open. And it's a, it's a reckoning or it's, it's, it's a quoting, excuse me, from, from Joel chapter number 2. So if you have your Bible, turn back uh, to Joel 2 just for a couple of minutes. Uh, Joel chapter 2. Uh, and the verses are verses 28 through 32. But let me just quickly mention to you uh, why and, and, and what Joel is saying there. Uh, Joel's prophecy from chapter 1 verse 1 to chapter 2 verse 17 uh, is a chronicling of this massive plague of locusts that ran through the land, that flew through the land and ate everything up, causing famine, causing death and destruction. Chapter 1 verse 1 to 2.17, a massive plague of locusts. But then in chapter 2 verse number 18, as you get closer to the verses that are quoted here, uh, there is then the mention uh, of the fact that God, therefore, uh, God then turned the tables. God blessed his people with food. Notice in verse number 19. Behold, I'm sending to you grain, wine, oil, and you will be satisfied. Grain, wine, oil, you will be satisfied. God sent the locusts. And God sent the food. And they were satisfied. Verse 27 again. You shall know that I am the Lord, uh, that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there's none else. This is the purpose of what uh, God was doing there. And my people should never again be put to shame. There's a plague, and then God, fix, God figures out the plague, right? God fixes the plague. God reverses the plague. He, he takes away food. He gives food. Why? It's all because of their sins. He's teaching them. He's wanting them to repent. And Joel Time and time and time again in Joel's prophecy, you have that language of rending or tearing uh, not your garments, but your hearts. Rend your hearts and not your garments. I don't want to see sackcloth and ashes, the, the typical outward ways in which people would show that they repented in those days. No, tear your heart, rip it apart. Turn to me, the Lord says time and time again. And he got them to do that by taking away food. And when they did that, God then blessed them and provided for them as a father does to, to a child. But then in verse 28 through 32, the little section that Peter quotes, all those earthly outward things of plagues and, and food and so forth, that was all to prepare Judah, the southern kingdom, for deeper things, for spiritual things. And so just as in verse 23, the Lord is said to have poured out rain upon Judah to cause the food to grow once again to satisfy them. Verse 28, the Lord says he's going to pour out his spirit. He's going to pour out his spirit and give them greater blessings. The things that truly matter. He's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh, we read in verse 28. All people in contrast, uh, flesh in contrast to uh, uh, spirit. They are flesh, they are humans, they are mortals. God is spirit. And so the, in the context there in verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse number 1, who is all flesh? Well, it's speaking of Judah uh, and those in Jerusalem. He's going to pour the spirit upon all those. And he's going to cause them to do three things, to prophesy, to, to have dreams, and to have visions. 
He's going to reveal himself once again. For the prophet Amos said there was a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, but a famine of the word of God. But yet God can reverse that in days to come when he's going to cause his people to prophesy, dream, and have visions. It's what Moses prayed way back in Numbers 11. Oh, that all of God's people would prophesy and that God would put his spirit on them. Their sons and daughters, notice his contrast, sons and daughters, uh, their old men, their young men, even male and female servants, all those associated with the covenant people are going to receive this spirit. In other words, all the distinctions are going to be removed. It's a prophecy of what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. There's no Jew nor Gentile in Christ. There's no more slave and free. There's no more male and female. We are all one in Christ. That day is coming, the prophet said. And so Peter's here quoting from that and then goes on to say in verse 30 to 31 that uh, this day the Lord that's already come upon Judah by plaguing them with locusts, but that day of judgment is still yet to come for the nations. And all who call upon the Lord's name shall be saved from that day of judgment. Peter, back to Acts 2, Peter says all this is happening right now. All this is happening before the crowd's eyes and in their ears. And so you see in, in, in Joel chapter 2, verse 28, if you have your Bible there, it says, and it shall come to pass afterward. It shall come to pass afterward. Joel's speaking of this plague and the reversal of the plague, but he's also Somehow, in the, in the Old Testament kind of way, he's seeing something yet to come, but it's not quite revealed yet. It shall come to pass afterward. But then Peter, as Peter quotes this in translation, afterward becomes the last days. Back to Acts 2, verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, and so forth. The last days. What's the significance of Peter saying that these things, that what you're hearing and seeing, this is what Joel said, and then he says it's the last days. In the last days, these things are going to happen. What's the, the, the significance of that? Well, don't we read in the gospel stories, especially at the very beginning of the gospels, Matthew, for example, Mark, for example, where we hear the preaching, the first preaching of the gospel, and we hear it in terms like this. Repent, for the kingdom of God is what? It's at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. It's drawn near. Later on, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12 that the kingdom of God is upon you. It's come upon you. The king of the Old Testament has come. And his kingdom is now being established once again. So we have this language in the Gospels of the kingdom having come. Something significant has happened. And that is understood to be the, time, uh, the beginning of the last days. That's why we can read in the New Testament that the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ begins the last days. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son in his birth, in his incarnation, in the fullness of time. We can read, for example, in Hebrews 9, verse 26, that 
that, that the Lord Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, he appeared at the end of the ages. Now, think about that. The cross of Jesus Christ, the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ and his death is at the end of the ages. But it's been 2,000 years since then. Again, uh, Peter says this later on in 1 Peter 1, verse 20. Peter, who's preaching this sermon, says in his first epistle that Christ was manifest in the last times. In other words, the last times, the last days, aren't something that are still to come. They've already begun. They happened at the Incarnation. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, Galatians 4.4. 4. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Mark 1.15, for example. The Lord has been revealed in the last times. Hebrews 9, verse 26. For us. The last times have already begun. And therefore, when Peter stands up on behalf of the eleven amidst them, and he preaches and he says, in the last days this shall be. He's speaking of a great urgency of seeing time, not just in a human perspective, but from God's point of view. The last time has drawn near. The hourglass has been turned. The sand is moving down, and it's almost finished. That's why the apostles can say things like, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. There's an urgency to time. There's an urgency to it. Scientists since the, uh, the, the advent of the atomic bomb have uh, come up with what they call the doomsday clock. I think literally back in the days it was, a, it was actually a real clock. Uh, now it's just online and you can, you can see the time uh, moving around. But according to scientists across the world, we are 100 seconds until midnight, right? Meaning close to doomsday when all of our technology and all of our advances can be used to obliterate everything that exists on the face of the planet. And so, therefore, there's an urgency. There's an urgency to the things that our brother prayed for this morning, uh, for, for turning uh, swords and spears into pruning hooks and plowshares. There's an urgency uh, for us as human beings to de-escalate war. And to think of these things because of the advances that we have and how quickly we can wipe each other out. 100 seconds until midnight, according to scientists. There's an urgency for us as believers that we are living in the last days. In fact, you know that the Bible says not just those things that I've just quoted for you, but in 1 John 2, verse 18, the apostle says something very, very interesting. And again, it's interesting, from our vantage point, we think of it and we say, well, isn't it weird that the apostles say that the last days began in, say, the year, you know, one, or whenever it was when Jesus was born, and the cross, say, around A.D. 30. The last days began, but it's been 2,000 years, Pastor. It just doesn't really seem to, to comport. It's because we view time from our vantage point, but God has his own. In fact, this is why John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, look it up on your own, the Apostle John, the one who reclined upon Jesus' breast at that Last Supper, he said, my little children, in fact, it's not just the last days. What else does he say? Do you know what he says? It is the last hour. 
It's the last hour. Now, we might look at that and maybe we might receive an objection from somebody who may have read the Bible. And we might even be confused by it. And we might just feel like, yeah, you know, the Bible sometimes speaks in these kind of mythology sort of, uh, you know, similes and, and so forth, poetic license and whatnot. It's the last hour because John is reckoning it from God's vantage point. The time is near. The time is near. There's an urgency. And so there's an urgency in Peter. There's an urgency for preachers to preach with this urgency. There may not be a next week for me to stand up here. There may not be a, 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 a tomorrow for us as we witness and we testify of Jesus Christ. There may not be another chance to tell that person about Christ. It's the last hour. The grains of sand are falling down. It's the last hour. One hymn says it like this, Speed away, speed away with the message of rest to the souls by the tempter in bondage oppressed. For the Savior has purchased a ransom from sin and the banquet is ready. Oh, gather them in. To the rescue, make haste. There's no time for delay. Speed away, speed away, speed away. So there's an urgency in Pentecostal preaching. The urgency of objections and answering those so that we can get to the gospel. There's an urgency of the time in which we live. And from, from God's vantage point, it's the last hour. There's no time for delay to turn from sin and to turn to the Lord who's made us to come back to God. And to find in Jesus Christ forgiveness of our sins so that when he comes again, we are on his side and not against him. And that's why there's an urgency in belief. There's an urgency of faith. That's where we see that the last verse that I read this morning, verse 21, uh, it's from Joel chapter 2, verse 32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone. Everyone. No distinctions. I said this Last Sunday night, I believe it was, Sunday night after that, uh, or, or uh, before that, uh, on, a, on a different subject. But there's no, there are no distinctions. There's no special kind of sinner that is outside the realm of Christ's redemption. There's no special kind of sin that we can say, well, I can't share the gospel with her or him because she or he's done that. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's no distinction there. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, whatever the distinction is, there are none. Everyone, he says. And everyone who calls, that is to cries out for mercy, shall notice, not maybe, hopefully, will be, possibly, potentially, might be, shall be saved. Those who call upon the name of the Lord the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who's come in his first advent for us in his death and resurrection and who's coming again as judge. That Lord, that Lord stands and he waits and he says, come to me, all who labor, who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's the one who says, I stand at the door and I knock. And the one who answers, I will enter. There's an urgency today 
whoever you are, to believe in Jesus. You may not understand why fully yet. You may not know who exactly he was and what he did yet. Believe. The gospel is not for those who figure it out intellectually. It's not for those who clean their lives up practically. No, it's for those who call out for mercy, in some sense recognizing a need. Lord, have mercy. And Jesus promises to hear. And so from our passage this morning, what is Pentecostal preaching? What is the kind of preaching uh, that is inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, that is uh, dependent upon the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit himself blesses and the Spirit promises to use? It's the kind that is urgent. The kind that's urgent. And I pray and trust as we sense that urgency here uh, in preaching, that we would then have a sense of urgency out there in the world to answer objections, to understand the time in which we all are living. The time is near. And the importance and the imperative urgency of believing in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, our Heavenly Father, our great God, our Creator, the one who sent your son, we come to you. And we ask that you would bless to our ears, but especially to our hearts, the words that we heard today. And Lord, we know, as Paul said, on the one hand, it's, uh, there's, a, there's a sense in which it's better for us to depart, to be with Christ, but yet to stay behind, Lord, as to be of benefit to someone else. And so we, we pray, Lord, out of that tension that, Lord Jesus, you would come quickly. And until you come, continue, Lord, to shower your grace, your spirit upon us and from us, Lord, uh, to others who have yet to hear this wonderful message that Jesus came to save sinners, to give his life in their place. And so forgive us, Lord, for our lack of passion and urgency and even clarity and patience and hearing objections and give us, Lord, a sense of wisdom and knowledge to do so. To speak, Lord, with great, with, with great zeal uh, to our lost friends and our loved ones. Open their eyes, we pray. Change their hearts, we ask. Lord, turn their lives, which only you can do in your miraculous power. Do it, Lord. We can't do it ourselves, but only you can. Answer our prayers, Lord. Use our prayers to that end. And grant faith, Lord, to all who are here today. We ask it all in Jesus' name. And all of God's people say, Amen. Let's respond together uh, to these wonderful words of the Apostle uh, 4.24. Uh, all authority and power in our red hymnal, 4.24. Uh, we'll sing... The four verses, let's stand up as we're able to.